I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. In play to DeRozan against Kyle Anderson with a spit at the foul line. Double pump, up and under, got tied up, goes to the floor and turned it over. Kyle Anderson with the steal to Morant. Bulls need to foul as Levine from behind fouls Morant. And then we got a tech and DeRozan has been tossed. Frustrating night, but in the end, both came back in the fourth quarter, made it a game, gave it a go, were not able to come out on the winning side as Memphis down Chicago 116 to 110. The man who was there on site, on the air, and covers the bull as well as anyone in this town is Casey Johnson of NBC Sports Chicago. You can find him on Twitter at KCJHoop. Casey, joining me on the Circus Resort and Casino in Las Vegas Hotline. Appreciate your time, man. How you doing this morning? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me on this morning. Appreciate it. Yeah, been a minute, been a minute. Appreciate you making it happen. The um, the game last night, a lot of it just felt like, man, the Bulls are kind of swimming upstream uh, against Memphis. And then, you know, you get a little bit of John Moran off the courts, get a little defensive adjustment. The right guys start to heat up. And it was a really exciting fourth quarter. In your assessment, and then what Billy Donovan said afterwards, was that about the Bulls sort of coming to life at the right time? Or were there things sort of, you know, strategically that that were adjusted to make the fourth quarter what it became? Yeah, uh, I think it's a combination, obviously, of everything. I mean, every team's got ebbs and flows and runs, typically. Uh, I do think the post-game comment that stood out to me was uh, Zach Levine talking about needing to play with you know, the urgency uh, that they showed in the fourth quarter and have better attention to detail in the first and third quarters. And that, to me, sounds like a game plan thing. I mean, look, all that said, even if you follow the game plan to a T, particularly when you're playing without Alex Caruso and Lonzo Ball, you're going to struggle against that team because you're going to face a steady diet of a big Bulls weakness with those guys sideline, and that's that elite screen roll action between Steven Adams and, and John Morant. Um, you know, I'm not saying that Caruso or Ball would stop it, but they certainly would deter it probably with a little bit more efficiency or make it a little harder. I mean, those two guys are just that always play well against the Bulls. Steven Adams, I was joking, looks like Will Chamberlain when he plays the Bulls. I mean, he's just such a force physically. And, you know, they did make some adjustments on that action in the third quarter. Um, but, you know, Jaws a special player, and then um, they just didn't have enough in that fourth quarter when they started kind of pushing the tempo offensively and trying to get up court faster. 
the the streak of thirty five point games comes to an end for DeRozan. Tired of writing about it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe he's not Wilt Chamberlain at the moment, but that streak comes to an end. Did did end up heating up in the fourth quarter on what on the whole was a frustrating night, KC. I'm I'm wondering the the toll. Just in in general, the the toll of a guy who's who's in his thirties and carrying so much of the Bulls' offense. It's been a pleasant surprise, I suppose, to see the level he's played at. But his style of play, you would imagine, takes a lot out of him. And even in the end, in the fourth quarter, he's like he's picking up the the John Morant defensive assignment and coming up with some plays there too. Do you think there should be much attention paid by Billy Donovan to, I'll just use the, the common phrasing now, to the usage rate of DeMar DeRozan? It was last night a night where that showed up, or maybe he just didn't quite have the legs to be himself for much of the game. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. There's a lot of different ways you can go with that answer. Here's my overall assessment, and obviously I was I was joking about that streak. It was just something mm-hmm. like you had to keep paying attention to like, okay, how many games has he done 30 points in a row? How many games has he done 35 points in a row? How many games has he done 35 points in a row with 50% better shooting? And by the way, he did extend the 30-point uh, streak to a, right. a career-best 10 game. So, um, you know, obviously he's not going to shoot 60, 70, whatever ridiculous percent he was shooting that streak every night. I, I get where you're coming from with the usage and – um, the reliance on him, I would push back a little bit just in a sense uh, in two areas. He doesn't ex- exert a lot of energy on the defensive end, and I'm not saying that critically. That's just who he's always been. He's not uh, He's not an elite two-way player. He's not, you know, Michael locking down Gary Payton, you know, in his prime. So he doesn't expend a ton of energy on that end. And then offensively, he plays – you know that that, and I'm saying this complimentary, but, you know, he plays that old, old man game, you know, that yeah. – efficient half court mid range game. I mean, I know it takes energy still, but he's not, he's not dunking on people. I mean, he can, but he, he's not playing with the force or torque like a Derrick Rose played in his prime. So um, it, it has been an amazing season. I think it was just an off shooting night. I thought his looks were pretty similar. He just missed them and he is human. Uh, finally, uh, after that ridiculous eight game stretch. Zach Levine, uh, in a similar vein, I mean, because we know the that whatever the specifics are of structural issues in the knee, we know it will continue to require care. Um, and Billy Donovan spoke after the game about about Zach and and his rhythm. And how do you see the games to come in this most pivotal stretch, where you know the, the reinforcements are on the way, but not any time in the in the next couple of weeks. Here, and there's some really difficult games the Bulls have coming up here. How do you see Zach Levine and his the the long term health? of his knee and how much they can expect out of him with these difficult games coming. How do you see the Bulls managing that as we move forward? Yeah, it'll be a communication thing. I can tell you that I've just sensed a complete change uh, mentally uh, from Zach since he went to visit that specialist that he had such a comfort level with. And the fact that they work, you know, obviously in concert and collaboration with the Bulls doctors, he's just in a better place mentally. Uh, I thought he looked, pretty much himself last night uh he has said that his knee feels good i mean it's never going to be 100 percent, as you say uh, accurately uh until he can maybe address it during during the off season but he just to me seems like he's in a different place i think it's going to be good they do have a very tough schedule but the one uh benefit i don't have it in front of me the last i checked off memory i think they only have three back-to-backs um in the final 21 um it might be four but i think it's three uh including one this this weekend thursday at atlanta friday at home against the bucks but that's where you're going to have to have the most communication i mean 
They are off basically today. They fly to Miami. They play there. He'll be fine for that. They've got two off days, you know, before the Atlantic game. He'll be fine for that. Um, or maybe they choose to sit him for that one and, and play him in the Friday one. That's the kind of stuff that we don't know yet in this new normal. But I do think it's to the point where it's going to be able to be managed uh, down this stretch run and, and into the playoffs because just where he's at mentally and also, you know, the shot he took physically, I do feel like uh, he, he, he feels better about his knee. And you, you were correct. It was, uh, you know, just off the dome because you're Casey Johnson. You know these things. Yeah, three – Three back-to-backs remain on the Bulls' schedule, kind of closing out the season here. So there will at least be, for the most part, even though the opponents will be difficult, there will be a day in between the majority of those games. Continuing our discussion with the great Casey Johnson here on Chicago Sports Radio 670. The score joining me on the score hotline presented by Circle Resort and Casino in Las Vegas, home of the world's largest sports book. And I was making this contention a little earlier in the show, Casey, that as much as the Bulls miss the defense of Lonzo Ball and Alex Caruso, I really feel like their absence plays a big role in just kind of the how difficult it is for the Bulls to generate much easy offense. I, it, just, it seems to me like their IQ on the offensive end of the court and in quickly advancing fast break opportunities for Ball and you know Caruso seeing, seeing the game through a point guard lens in the half court, I just think kind of that, that veteran savvy you – know, it shows up more statistically with them not being there defensively that the Bulls still score. It just feels like offense is harder without the two of those guys out there as well. Am I overstating what they mean to the Bulls offense? No, not at all. Because I mean, that was kind of the identity early in the season was, um, you know, their ability to wreak havoc defensively and then get out in transition and, and score points off opponent turnovers and ball is, you know, Caruso is so crucial to that, really in both ways, but more of the defensive end. And then Ball is obviously just so elite at advancing the ball, you know, the hockey assist, the throw-ahead pass, whatever you want to say. He, he's just such a connecting piece. So, you know, I know, and I wrote it too, but I, I know a lot has been made about their record against elite opponents, but they haven't been whole for a lot of those matchups. So, obviously, that's kind of the – you heard our terrorist Carter Chauvin say this in the trade deadline. That's kind of the – the goal of the franchise is to get whole and, and then see who they are come playoff time. Because when they have been whole, they've you know been able to post a top five offense and a top ten defense. I mean, they're still in the top five offense, but the defense has dropped off dramatically. And you know, the top five, getting back to your point about the offense, where the reason it's stayed where it is is because they've just been ridiculous shooting the ball this year. Their their true shooting as a team is insane. Levine and, and uh, DeRozan being the biggest examples of that. Um, this is definitely going to be dated a little bit, but I checked, I think, last week, and they were first in field goal percentage, first in three-point percentage, albeit on low volume, and second in free throw percentage. I mean, that's just, you know, ridiculous. So the shooting has sustained them, but as Billy always points out, that's not sustainable, particularly come playoff time, because the games get tighter, more physical, more centered on the half court. And so in that sense, anytime you get an easy basket, particularly in postseason basketball, it it's huge for a, a team. And that in that sense, that's where you're spot on and they, they really, really miss Ball and Caruso. 
and uh, I was looking at you know Cody Westerland put out you know everyone kind of has their their version of exactly the Bulls versus the good teams and uh, and how things haven't gone well. I saw where our Cody Westerland uh, tweeted out after the game. Bulls are now two and twelve against teams with a six hundred winning percentage or better. Only teams of that regard that they've beaten, they beat Cleveland once, lost to them once, and they beat Utah once and, and haven't played the Jazz again since then. How, I don't know, how aware are the players of that? It would, would be a silly question. I'm sure they know. But how, how have the Bulls addressed that publicly, that the players and maybe even Billy Donovan just playing against the best and how they've, they've come up short more often than not? Uh, I mean, Billy's the realist, and he he embraces it. He says, you know, I mean, he, we talked to him a couple of days ago about how challenging the schedule is. He goes, that's that's a good thing because you want hard because hard is what the playoffs are about. And if you want to be tested for the playoffs, you got to go through hard. So, um, I can tell you internally, uh, unequivocally, there is an incredibly strong internal confident vibe that man when we get right we're going to be a tough out for anybody there is such a confidence about this team and and it, and it extends even when they're shorthanded because there's such self-belief you know extending from DeMar DeRozan on down um so it, it extends to when they're shorthanded but I, I guarantee you that they feel that like man we can beat anybody or at least compete with anybody when we're at full strength and obviously what you need to see is what kind of rhythm and conditioning these guys come back in. I mean, Caruso obviously has been able to stay in condition because it's a hand injury. Same with Patrick Williams. Um, you know, Lonzo's a little bit different because it's a knee. But, uh, you know, those those guys, if they get back and this team gets whole, you know, th- they feel like that, 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 that stat and that record that we point to and write about is, is out the window because they just match up really well with a lot of different teams and they've got a lot of depth and they've got a lot of hunger and um you know competitiveness that's just been sitting on the sideline I mean, watch caruso during a game the guy's like coming out of his chair he's coaching he's <laughs> the guy's the guy's energized man so I, when he gets back he's gonna be uh he's gonna be a, a wrecking ball out there it's gonna be it's gonna be fun to see that's one of the most fun things about this team because they, you know, you know better than anyone. Just sort of the the vibe, the energy, the attitude around the team. That this is in addition to just playing well and being towards the top of the East. It's a squad that seems hungry, and I don't I don't think anyone could have predicted with certainty. Like we we saw them go the the veteran route a, a few years ago. It's like, hey, D Wade, come on to Chicago, and all right, you know, you you won some championships. Let's let's get it, but. It just—it didn't feel like just kind of an eager team, and this year's squad just looks really eager. Even though they've accomplished some things individually, and some of them are on the other side of thirty and whatnot, but you know, there's not a whole lot of rings on this squad, and they just seem really eager. So I, I think that that's a big part of what the city is feeding off of as well, because they're—they're they're looking at the vibe from the players. They're into it, and they're playing well, and style of play is fun and everything else. But that's—that at least for me, that's one of the things I appreciate. As much as anything, even the guys who aren't in the lineup, you mentioned Caruso. They they just all seem really eager to pursue greatness this year. Now I'm not sure any of us could have really anticipated that, even even if you thought this combination had a chance of you know a bunch of quality players coming together. But did did you think that the intangibles of this team would be what they ended up being here? Well, first of all, I would say that's really well stated and a, a really perceptive perceptive uh, observation from outside because I I think you're spot on, and I I would say that that started to become really clear to me as early as preseason when people were kind of poo-pooing, oh, it's just preseason, they're 4-0. And I was like, no, man. And DeRozan started giving this dynamic voice very early, uh, 
the, 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 the dynamic that we're talking about. He, get, he started giving voice to this very early. He's like, look, man, this is a collection of guys with, with individual chips on their shoulder coming together to form a collective larger chip on their shoulder. Because you mentioned Caruso. He's got a ring. But even a guy like that, he was overlooked. Mm. He was in the G League. Okay, so he's got to like a little nasty to him. Tristan Thompson now also has a ring, so I'm not counting really him because he's a latecomer. But DeMar DeRozan, longtime, you know, elite player, always overlooked as a guy who couldn't get past LeBron, even though he's a four-time All-Star. Zach Levine, empty calorie scorer, never been in the playoffs. He's angry, okay? <laughs> Vooch, um, you know, two-time All-Star, but, uh, you know, r- r- running up stats uh, for a bad team. He's got, like, a little uh, – so, so, like, they all kind of plugged into this together, and De- DeRozan was starting to talk about this as early as training camp. And then you combine it with that style of play that you mentioned and, you know, the wreaking the havoc defensively and getting out of transition. It's, it's, it's real. It's palpable. As you know, a big part of what we do is kind of reading, you know, the, the nuanced stuff when you're around a team every day and the beat, uh, the beat every day. And that's something I picked up on pretty early and it's real and I think it's going to fuel them if they get whole and I always say people say like oh, how far how far are the Bulls going to go to the playoffs I'm like I have no idea I just know they're going to be a tough out regardless of who they play because of their competitiveness their collective basketball IQ and um, just that you know beyond their skill just that kind of chip on their shoulder mentality He's on Twitter at KCJ Hoop, Casey Johnson of NBC Sports Chicago. You can hear the Bulls Talk podcast, watch them on TV. Our guy Jason Goff, everything they're doing over there has been absolutely spectacular this season. A couple other things I want to try to get to you quickly before I let you run here on a Sunday morning. I appreciate you being generous with your time, KC. There's, there's, there's multiple couplets of players of a similar ilk right now. Let, let's start with Io and Kobe. Io DeSumo and Kobe White, where last night was a game. It was, you know, Io hasn't necessarily looked like pre-All-Star Io through a couple of games here since the break. And Kobe White, you know, he, he got his stretches and he was shooting hot and the Bulls needed offense. And Billy Donovan said afterward, that's why he, he went more the Kobe direction. But what? What strikes you about that that combination, that dynamic right now with two, you know, both young players, you know, at, at least in experience and in age, Kobe's not much older than, than Io. So I'm, I'm wondering just how their dynamic can continue to play out and perhaps coexist throughout the season. Right now it seems like we're in a stretch where Io is, is taking a little bit of a backseat to Kobe, at least through a couple of games since the break. Well, I think last night was probably a little bit of foreshadowing for when they get back whole and healthy because obviously Ball and Caruso are going to be playing a lot and one of those is going to be starting. So, look, give Io and Kobe a lot of credit for how they play, you know, with their increased roles and their larger opportunity. But when Ball and Caruso come back, I mean, you got three guards with those two and Levine. They're going to be gobbling up most of the minutes. So what I think what you're going to see happen is exactly what Billy did last night is kind of read the game. Who's got what tonight? Do we need defense? Is Io engaged? Is he not making rookie mistakes? Boom, he's going to be out there. Um, do we are we trailing? Are we a little sluggish offensively? Do we need a heater, a heater off the bench? Okay, Kobe, boom, you're out there because you can't play five guards. I mean, you can, but it, it doesn't probably work, particularly in the playoffs. So, I, I think I think that's that's why last night was kind of like okay, that that's what you're going to see in the playoffs. And first person, I think it's a good thing. I mean, to have that kind of depth and those kind of options in the playoffs. So. I think those guys have handled the dynamic well, and so is the, the coaching staff. 
And now we do also have the Nikola Vucevic, Tristan Thompson dynamic, and it, it showed up last night. It, I guess it shouldn't shock us that it showed up defensively, where the Bulls were a better defense when Tristan Thompson showed up. I guess anyone could have predicted that, but it feels like there will be a, a balance for Billy Donovan to figure out when are the moments where, where you roll with Tristan Thompson and, and when are the moments where you do get your starting center back into the game. And we did see that show up last night. There were a lot of folks on social media and elsewhere like, hey, how come Tristan's not in here? They were actually getting stops, and now they're not. And what do we do with that, Casey? Yeah, so I would just say that I saw it bubble up on Twitter. We obviously asked the question in, in post game and then we, we actually kicked it around as a as a beat crew a little bit just offline um in the press room last night my mind didn't go there and maybe i'm in the minority because here's why you just don't do that like in the second game uh of a of a buyout guy with with a newcomer here and, and a veteran who has been in that role all season i mean that's just not how and most nba teams operate and the other thing is like if you had if you had ridden you know kept thompson out there and rode him all the way down the stretch he would have played like I'd have to look at it like seventeen, nineteen consecutive minutes. I don't, I'm not sure how effective he would have been at the stretch of that. So maybe okay, you say the, the counter of that is you pull him out and give him a quick blow and then throw him back out there. I, I still don't see it, man. I mean, Vooch has been there all year. He's your closer. Um, he didn't have a very good game last night, and you know Adams had his way with him. But you know, um, I, I don't. I don't see that in game two. I do think as you get a more comfort level and maybe figure out the rotation more, it is an option come playoff time when everything's on the table. But last night it didn't bother me as much as it probably bothered some people. But I could be wrong. That's just my opinion. No, and I, I completely agree. That's one of the things I was referencing earlier, just that I think that there, there's some patience that will need to be shown with that, and I think Billy Donovan will have more than enough opportunities to just get a sense for, for when are the moments where, almost like you're talking about with Io and Kobe, when are the moments where one guy out there who has a different skill set playing a similar position who really suits the moment more than the other. I could not agree more, and I could not thank you more. Casey Johnson for for getting up with me on a Sunday morning and providing your expertise on what's happening with the Bulls, man. Thanks a lot. Well, I appreciate uh, the talk. It was fun, Anthony. And all all we did was uh, you know prolong uh, be busting some J's in my kids' faces, which I'm gonna go through right now. So here we go. <laughs> well, please post that at KCJ Hoops. We can see if somebody blocked your shot back into your grill because that's probably coming as you get older too. <laughs> yeah, they're teenagers, so you're you're still hot, man. They they got something coming for me. All right, man. Thank you. All right, Casey. That is the great Casey Johnson of NBC Sports Chicago. He is on Twitter at KCJ Hoop. You can. Not only watch him on television, but of course, hear him on the Bulls Talk podcast. When we return, let's shift gears a little bit. We've been very Bulls heavy early in the show for understandable reasons, but a lot of baseball is uh, is not happening at the moment. But we're going to talk to Mike Farron of MLB Network Radio in just a few minutes. When we return, though, I just sort of want to update you uh, on, on some perspective on where things sit with the game at the moment. We'll get into that and uh, also – I don't know, there, there's some, some thoughts I have on, on how it sort of dovetails into things cinematically also. There's a lot we want to do with this topic. We'll do it on the other side of this timeout. Some baseball talk on the way here. Anthony Heron on Twitter and Instagram at Big Ant Heron. You are listening to The Score. If I hadn't um, given consideration uh, to what it would mean to miss games, I wouldn't be doing my job. Obviously, I pay attention to that. I, I, I see missing games as a disastrous outcome for the for this industry, and we're committed to making an agreement in an effort to avoid that. 
That was the voice of MLB Commissioner Rob Manfred claiming that he would view missing games as disastrous. Nah, completely sure I believe him, but we will see because uh, reportedly there is some some progress being made. Uh, sides are beginning to to come together a bit more right now over me. Um, I, I don't know for sure that I, I, my impression is not that both sides between the Major League Baseball Players Association and the MLB itself, I don't get the impression that both have the the same degree of motivation to to get a deal done immediately. And that stands to reason. Because in the end, as far as just the, the financial burden that is there, more of that financial burden would more quickly be felt by by players than by owners, by labor than by management. That's just that's the way that dynamic tends to operate. I was talking a little bit uh in transition with Chris Ranji the other day when I filled in for Lawrence and Ranji was was under the impression that essentially if baseball missed a bunch of time, like a big chunk of time and maybe even a whole season that it wouldn't necessarily end up being that that damaging, you know, on a direct quote, but the impression he gave me was that he he didn't necessarily think it would be that damaging to baseball if a bunch of time got missed. And I don't I, I just I have a hard time believing that especially in the midst of so many other of the the major both professional and amateur sports overtaking baseball throughout throughout our lifespan even just over the past couple of decades here you know you know baseball's not going to go away it's not going to you know cease to exist or anything like that but you know it would certainly be i, I believe I would I believe it would be largely damaging to baseball. It would make their market share even smaller now than it's begun to to be here over the last couple of decades. And that's that's obviously not where any sport wants to be. I mean, you know, who knows how much the the baseball brass out there even try to compare themselves with football anymore at this point. It's probably a fool's errand to try and do that. But in the end, I mean, you're trying to see how you measure up against the competition. The NFL is the behemoth and major college football is a, you know, as a slightly smaller behemoth. And then from there, everyone else is just kind of doing what they can do. And I believe where baseball got overtaken by, by the NBA during my lifetime, but baseball is still obviously ultra popular and, it does seem to me that if some time gets missed while it's in the midst of trying to repair the game, improve the game, then that's one thing. But that doesn't necessarily sound like what's happening here. And so, you know, when Rob Manfred has has said publicly that, you know, he he does think it would be this this devastating thing to miss games. I mean, I tend to agree with him, but I don't get the impression that Rob Manfred and baseball owners necessarily necessarily believe that as much. Certainly, I don't get the impression they believe it to the extent that they that they really feel a similar degree of urgency to strike a deal is what the players do and Ian Happ was on with Bernstein and Rahimi the other day and you know that they have him on so much uh, throughout the year and in in recent seasons and you know whether it's during the season or during the offseason or what have you he's he usually joins them and you know for a current player by you know judging it by that standard He's always fairly insightful when he's on with Dan and Layla as well. I want to uh, I want to let you hear a little bit from Ian Happ as well. One of the things he was talking with uh with Dan and Layla about was just specific to the notion of of how 
the the compensatory relationship between baseball owners and players just in in the modern times and how different the game is how the compensation should change to suit that i think minimums i know right now we have below us of the four major sports and i think it's pretty clear that that doesn't make any sense with what league revenues are and especially with how much um gambling is going to benefit the game of baseball um because it, it fits so well with just as much action as there can be and the other the other one is getting younger players paid earlier. I think we've all seen over the last five years the way that teams have changed how they operate. You know, players have gone out and done the same thing year after year after year, gone and played and tried to win and been competing on the field. And then you have teams in front offices who have really changed the rules on us kind of midway through. And to not acknowledge the fact that the game needs to, and the rules of the game need to continue to adjust with how teams are operating. So those younger players need to have a bigger portion because there's more of them than ever. They're putting up more value than they ever have before, and we're not compensating them that way. And you have guys in the room who none of the guys are in that situation. You know, none of the guys are going to benefit from zero to three players being paid more than they ever have before. And honestly, some might be pushed out of the game because of it, but they're arguing for those guys because that's how we know the game has changed, so the compensation needs to change. And that, that's the thing where, you know, owners have essentially reaped whatever financial benefits are there from the current financial model. And they're sort of, you know, apparently just kind of going kicking and screaming into allowing that model to adjust. And it, it benefits them, obviously, far more than it does the players to have a, a level of contract control to be able to keep. You know, as you keep players in the minor leagues, that the longer you get before you have to pay them, you know, and, and allow them into free agency. And and the the minimum, the league minimum is one thing that I really don't think enough folks pay a good amount of attention to. And there's actually someone who who I've seen on Twitter, a guy named uh, Daniel Epstein, who is the, the co-director of the Internet Baseball Writers Association of America. Didn't know such a thing existed uh, a couple of days ago, but it's there. And he's been tweeting a lot just about the dynamic between, you know, because obviously the, the millionaires versus billionaires is sort of the, the general or generic way that folks describe this dynamic. But he's putting some, some details out there. He's on Twitter at Epstein 1983 but just putting some of the details out there about where the majority of Major League Baseball players are not millionaires. All the owners are billionaires, but the majority of Major League Baseball players are not millionaires and I think that's part of what Ian Happ is speaking to there with even just trying to raise the league minimum because you know players they make whatever their their pro pro contract their big league contract would allow them for the time and in some cases in many cases that they may briefly be with the big league club but not everyone the majority of guys playing major league baseball are not millionaires at the moment let's hit a let's hit one more cut before we we go to a break and we'll talk to Mike Farron of MLB Network Radio next. And this one is, is specific to uh, Ian Happ, just wanting fans to understand what, what the Major League Baseball Players Association is actually fighting for at the moment. We have a group of players who, in the middle or the end, what would hopefully be the end of their offseason when they would be traveling to Arizona or Florida or wherever and kind of spending those last few days with their family and loved ones and friends. They're jumping on a plane and traveling to Florida in West Palm to be there in person to try to help move these things along. I think that's the players want this, the attentiveness from the entire group, all of the reps and other veteran players who are so involved in what's going on, all the hours that guys have put into being on 
I can't count the number of hours that I've spent on Zoom calls and phone calls and text chains about what's going on and trying to help push this thing in the right direction. You know, the players are, are so heavily committed to getting this back on track, and we hope that the fans understand what we're fighting for. In the end, I believe the fans don't necessarily, for the most part, you know, people want to live their life and then go and enjoy the sport that they enjoy. So a lot of them aren't necessarily into the minutia of what's involved in the negotiation. In the end, a lot of people just kind of want this to be done so they can get back to enjoying baseball. But as far as who gets held accountable for it and who you're more upset with, it does seem to me that more of the public sentiment than at any other time in, in our lifetimes, more of it is is pro-player. Pro more of it is pro-labor. And that that usually that hasn't been the case very much historically. So I do find that to be a really interesting development through the last uh, few negotiating cycles here. Uh, so at the moment, far as I know, lockout isn't over yet, but uh, everyone's watching it very closely. And we'll get the latest from uh, MLB Network Radio's Mike Fair next here on The Score. Anthony Aaron on Chicago Sports Radio, 670 The Score. Nick of our number two. We were very bulls heavy early in the show. Now we've been getting some baseball chatter going here. As a lot of folks on pins and needles, on the edge of their seat, whatever uh, little nomenclature you want to throw on it to label uh, a lot of us who are eagerly anticipating the close of these lockout negotiations. We hope it will be coming sooner than later. So, Figured we'd have a discussion with Mike Farron of MLB Network Radio, who joins me now on the hotline presented by Circle Resort and Casino in Las Vegas, home of the world's largest sports book. Mike, it's Sunday. What's the news, man? How are you this morning? You ready? <laughs> uh, I was uh, ready as I'll ever be. The uh, <laughs> the you know yesterday was supposed to be the first spring training game, so I just get the sense it's going to be a while before we have those. So. Oh. Now, so the the folks who are, you know, tweeting about this, there's like every time there is some sort of like a, it's almost like Punxsutawney Phil. Like when Rob Manfred kind of pops up somewhere, then it, it feels like there's a little bit of, of positivity. Folks like, oh, well, all right, I guess the commissioner's involved, so maybe that's a good thing. He says something like, hey, here's where we acquiesced a little bit, or he shows up at negotiations. Um, do you get the sense that with this this sort of looming deadline that that each side is legitimately eager to make something happen within the next let's call it 24 hours well let me let me go back on a couple of things the the owners can end the lockout at any time that they want to they don't Mm. need to they did not need to do this um legally speaking i'm not a a labor attorney but i'm going to play one for the purposes of this interview if a collective bargaining agreement expires between two parties you continue to work under the previous agreement until one is reached. That's what, that's what labor law says in the U.S. The issue in this is that the collective bar, or the competitive balance tax, the luxury tax, expired at the end of the CBA. There was a sunset clause in it. That is probably the most cynical, but also one of the more likely reasons why the lockout happened almost immediately, because otherwise you would have had an uncapped year. Um, and that's been acting as a salary cap, and the offers from the league are far more restrictive. The other part is this deadline. The league set this deadline. This is what they have decided needs to be a deadline tomorrow in order to play a full 162 games. And the players don't agree with that. So theoretically, as part of any negotiation, 
you could move that date. You could make changes. You could make alterations. But this is an attempt by the league to play hardball in this. So those couple of things I think you need to know going in that to some degree this is self-inflicted based on what their attorneys tell them is the best course of action and based on what the largest collection of owners want out of a new collective bargaining agreement. But at any point, at any time, today, tomorrow, two weeks from now, the league could end the lockout. They could just end the lockout and let the players report to work. Now, they expose themselves to a strike further down the line, if that's the case, and the players certainly would have that as a recourse. But that's where we stand, and that's the reality of, of the situation that we find itself, ourselves in, is that most of this is self-inflicted. Mike Farron of MLB Network Radio here with me on Chicago Sports Radio 670 The Score. You can find Mike on Twitter at Mike underscore Farron. And um, it, it feels like these last couple of rounds of, of, of CBA talks, you know, whatever it is, like every handful of years where owners go through this uh, with the, the MLBPA, and it seems like the owners are more and more eager to, like, save themselves from themselves, essentially. And it, it, my impression is that they're, they're becoming a little more successful with that, where when I was a kid, it's like the baseball union was the most powerful and influential union there was, and there was like no breaking it. And now it does seem like in, in whatever manner, the owners are, are starting to, to gain a little bit of headway uh, you know, in opposition with the players' union, how it used to be. Is the, is the MLBPA a little less forceful than than it once was is that accurate um it's a good question i don't know i I mean i think at least in terms of its effectiveness of negotiation over the last decade i would say yes um the last two collective bargaining agreements have tipped things back towards the favor of the owners the last one in particular was galling i think as somebody who follows the sport because the players focus it really made it seem like they were more concerned about quality of life issues like having extra seats on the bus to get to the ballpark or um, having chefs to be able to cook meals, which, you know, listen, I understand the need for healthy eating um, at the ballpark and for, for premium athletes, but those really seem like luxury items versus trying to fight for better pay for the youngest members of your union, which they're doing now. So I think, yes, that, there, that from that standpoint, that was true. But I also think that the actions over the last several years by the league, starting with their declaration in the middle of 2019 that there were certain things that they weren't willing to discuss in the next collective bargaining agreement, continuing through the way that players reacted to the aftermath of the Astros scandal, to the way the 2020 restart was handled, have basically unified the players in a way that they haven't been in a long time because they hadn't needed to be. And so from a standpoint of the negotiating strength prior to this, yeah, I think it's fair to say that it had been weakened a bit. Is is it now? I mean, there are a lot of people a lot smarter than I with the numbers of the dollars who say regardless of even if the owners were to accept the last proposal made by the players, the one made yesterday that they did not respond kindly to, um, if they were to accept that, the owners would come out ahead. That they, the, the concessions that are being made in the grand scheme of things are not all that significant when you consider the increase in revenue and specifically the national television revenue that's coming in. So that's a, it's a big issue, and the players seem to be pretty unified at this point. But it's also a lot easier to be unified when you haven't had a paycheck in jeopardy 
And players don't get paid during the offseason. Their first paycheck will come the 15th of April. So we'll see how, you know, that's, that's when revenues start to be in jeopardy too for owners. So we'll see, you know, if, if they really want to play this game of chicken for another couple of weeks, um, you know, when somebody might blink when, when there is the thought of losing either your paychecks or the revenue that you have coming in in the case of the owners. Yeah, that is uh that is usually where these things where the, where the rubber starts to meet the road. There's no doubt about that. And for for me as a guy like during during my football career, I was always a, a minimum salary guy. You know, a little signing bonus here or there, but like for whatever my experience was in the sport, I was usually making whatever that that rookie minimum or that veteran minimum was depending on on the experience during my football career. And like you referenced where right now it, it's a bigger part of the negotiation. It's a bigger push from the MLBPA than it has been in years past to try and, and get, you know, the, the ability for younger players to get to free agency more quickly, to get the minimum salary raised, you know, and, and some of those things that, that have now come to the fore more than they have in the past. How, how realistic does it seem? Because I feel like that, that discussion about kind of contract control and the, the manipulation of, you know, the, the minor league system and, you know, how, how, teams have taken advantage of that for so many years it felt to me like that would end up being sort of the line in the sand that players would draw and I'm, I'm not completely getting the impression that 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 is as much the line in the sand as I thought it would be is that is that a, a chief issue for the players right now yeah it's a, I mean I think I think it's a big issue for the players because MLB has the lowest minimum of any of the the major professional sports leagues the four North American ones including the NHL Remember, they play twice as many games, basically, as the NBA or NHL does. So they have the lowest minimum. They also have the highest percentage of players that are on rosters that are being paid that number. But that's why this shift has come in the emphasis for the players to focus on the young players is because more jobs are going to those guys. So if they're going to be counted on more, they should be paid more, right? That's, I mean, I think that's, that's perfectly fair. So I think that's a big part of it. I mean, as for... The service time, listen, they're not the, the free agent asks were pie in the sky early negotiation asks, right? Like those are things that you're hoping you can get. That's not going to happen. The service time manipulation, you know, it's an interesting one. The owners did propose yesterday that if somebody finished in the top two of the, um, the rookie of the year, um, that they would get uh, a full year of service time, regardless of whether or not they were called up, which would be interesting, at least at some semblance of a concession. But I think the service time manipulation stuff is very difficult to handle. In fact, I think that even some of the union's proposals, um, while on the surface seem like they're good ideas for, you know, trying to ensure that guys come up and, you know, have a chance if they finish, you know, high enough in awards or, or in war calculations to be able to receive um, more money um, and to receive service time based on that. I think it just also lends to the possibility of keeping those guys longer down longer in a season in order to avoid that. So, and, and really you're only dealing with a handful of players. You're dealing with the best ones, right? You know, like Chris Bryant is obviously the big one in Chicago. That's the kind of the outlier, you know, for the most part, most rookies aren't viewed as potential, you know, multiple time all-stars MVP candidates. And so the service time issue doesn't necessarily impact them quite as much. And the service time manipulation doesn't. So, I don't know how much ground they're actually going to end up making on that, but I do think that one of the things that is interesting on both parts is the, the adjustments to arbitration. 
arbitration is a really big engine for salary gain. It's one of the biggest things that this union accomplished back in the 70s, and it helps to drive salaries. And what's happened is that in 1981, the players gave uh, ground on arbitration to and before it was everybody with two more or more years of service time got that. Now, then it was three. Now that's a percentage of the two plus, as we call them, service times with more than two years, less than three who get into the arbitration process. The players want more of that to go to young players. The owners don't want to even discuss it because they also understand that doesn't just drive the immediate salaries, but it's going to drive all the future comparative salaries. So that to me is a major sticking point still because the owners don't want it and the players want it. And for understandable reasons on both sides, right? The owners, rich people like to keep their money or the really wealthy <laughs> people like to keep their money, right? You would know, the Mike. the players want to try and drive up the salary. Yeah. <laughs> that's why I am not very wealthy. So like, I think I've got 20 bucks in my wallet. But So that's a big that's a big factor. And then the other big one is obviously the competitive balance tax because the, it just hasn't moved at the same rate as revenues have. And they're trying to create – really onerous penalties for people who want to exceed it. And that's a problem for driving salaries. It really is. But the biggest issue with the competitive balance tax is it doesn't actually do anything to encourage those lower revenue clubs from spending to spend. And so even if you had a less onerous CBT, it might benefit a few players in that they were able to get contracts, but it's not going to do anything to actually increased competitive balance. The competitive balance part of it is a misnomer. That's some really slick marketing. <laughs> uh, and I really hope that... My wife can it. smell the marketing on that. She's a marketing executive, and she'll look at things <laughs> and she'll go, oh, yeah, that's marketing. She can smell it. <laughs> and I hope that pooch wasn't attacking you. Are you, like, dragging a poodle who's nabbing, like nibbling on your pant leg well, at the moment? no, so, like, I got, I'm out with my dogs right now because it's beautiful here. It's going to be 70 today of course. in Arizona. And so I'm out walking them, and... My little guy is a little terror on the leash. Sweetest dog in the world. He looks like a Muppet. He's adorable. But he's 26 pounds, and he thinks he's 260. So, <laughs> oh, I love it. Continuing our discussion with Mike Farron on the Circuit Resort and Casino in Las Vegas Hotline, home of the world's largest sports book. Uh, before I let you run, I would love it because I was trying to – I was detailing a little bit of it earlier in the show just in talking to folks about this. You know, we, we tend to use the very broad term – millionaires versus billionaires. I think a lot of folks mm-hmm. don't recognize part of what you were describing that the majority of players in Major League Baseball and some of them, you know, fluctuate up and down from the minors to the majors and many of them are not, you know, making the, these tens of millions of dollars on an annual basis or even millions of dollars on an annual basis. The majority of them are not, you know, these multi-millionaires and, you know, whether it's guys who sort of toil for years in the minor league system or those who are just at the bottom of a major league roster. And how, how important is this to them? What is their their sort of contract structure, their lifestyle? How does that, for the majority of these rosters who aren't you know sort of at the front of every website and every MLB network show, the guys who folks don't know as much about, how, how big a deal is this for them? Well, it, it, I mean, it's pretty big for them. But, I mean, like, listen, I'm not going to feel sorry for anybody making the league minimum you know, as it stands right now, is 570000 last year, which is a very difficult number for most of us to comprehend, right? Mm. <laughs> like, 
maybe we have that if we're fortunate maybe we have that left on our mortgage you know like i guess we would have had to have a pretty big house but maybe you have that left on your mortgage i'm not sure that mine was ever quite that big but, but i think that there's i mean i think it is clearly important to that but i think it goes back to the point that there are more of those players being used than ever before and if you're going to count on them to be able to provide the vast majority of your work, they should be compensated fairly. I think that's the point of the union. You know, if you don't want to compensate them fairly, then reduce the number of spots, I guess, that can be used for that and pay those middle-tier free agents. I think that's what they would like to have, or at least have, from the union standpoint, make teams have to make the decision between, okay, if that number is closer, do we want minimum salary guy or do we want the veteran who gives us a little bit more certainty, maybe not as much upside, but um, also costs a little bit more. I think the other part of it, and this has been really interesting, kind of flown under the radar is, you know, if you're on a 40-man roster, you have three years that you can be optioned. But the league and the players have both now come up with proposals that would limit the amount of times that you could be sent to the minor leagues in a given season, instead of having somebody like Lewis head for the Rays, who went was optioned 12 different times last year, they, the proposal right now has that number at about five. And I think that would be interesting, too, because if a player is in the major leagues, they make the major league minimum for while they are in the major leagues. If they go back to the minor, they're on what's called a split contract that they have in hockey where they don't make as much. <laughs> and so um, I think that's part of it as well. But again, like for the common fan, I think that this, these are numbers that are astronomical, right? For most of us, it's ridiculous. Now, you and I have covered professional to seem outlandish, but I think if you're to boil it down, it's the, it's the typical battle that everybody has, right? Management doesn't want to spend money. Labor wants to get paid more. And that's what it is. And if you can divorce the numbers from it, which I get is very, very difficult, you know, it, it, it makes a lot more sense. The other part is the reason they're asking for this is that revenues have exploded. And baseball in a healthy year is like an 11 to $12 billion business. And the percentage of money that's going to the players is significantly less. I don't go to a ballpark to see owner's own. I go to a ballpark to see players play. So I understand why the players want to be able to make up some ground that they've lost in the last two. They're not asking to make up all of it, but they want to make up some of the ground, and that's where the fight was. Mike Farron, you're the good, sir. Appreciate you taking the time. Anytime, man. Take care. All right, that is the great Mike Farron of MLB Network Radio with the latest, not only on what's happening on the labor side, but on the management side as everyone waits to see if this lockout will get unlocked. So we talked a lot of Bulls and a lot of baseball. Let's get a little football going here. I tend to have folks who get all you know anxious and, and upset when uh, when I spend a lot of time on here and I'm not talking foosball. But there has been uh, there's been some things that have that have struck my fancy as of late as this new bull this new Bears brass has taken over. Going to detail some of those things for you next here on the score. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news. You call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. 
You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Hey everyone, Boomer Esiason here. The NFL Draft is behind us and your favorite team is now gearing up for week number one. The free Odyssey app puts you right in the middle of the pro football conversation with the biggest sports radio stations from across the country. The local voices who know your team the best, giving you their unfiltered takes on the current state of your squad. It's always football season right here on the free Odyssey app. 